White Rocket Entertainment. White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 420. It's the Avengers Assemble podcast from the Jarvis heads of AvengersAssemble.net. Now here's your host, Van Allen Plexico. Hello and welcome to the White Rocket podcast brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment in association with all of our great patrons via Patreon.com. I'm Van Allen Plexico, and this episode I'm presenting to you the panel from Thursday night at DragonCon 2019 where the great Michael Bailey and I talked about the Avengers. We talked about how the movies have been going and sort of where the material they use in the movies came from, including the original comics, the ultimate force works, the cartoons, all that sort of thing. We crammed a lot into an hour in front of a great big audience at DragonCon, and so without further ado, here we go. Uh, I'm Michael Bailey. I am a podcaster. I have something I laughingly call the Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network, where I do shows about Superman and Batman and other comics. Uh, I have not done a Marvel show yet, but, you know, night's young. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Van Allen Plexico. I've written the Sentinel Superhero Novels, nine volumes of superhero adventures. Um, I have a table 633 in Artist Alley, if you want to come and check those out. I do a bunch of podcasts, including the White Rocket podcast, where we talk about stuff like comics and movies and TV and stuff. And probably for this panel, I'm best known not only I host the Marvel DC Jeopardy trivia thing for the last 21 years at Dragon Con. Oh, I know, we had like six people the first year, now we got about 300, including Michael a bunch of times. But also, uh, in 1995, I founded the AvengersAssemble.net website, and it's still around. So it was around before Marvel.com was around. So you can www.AvengersAssemble.net. Lots and lots and lots of Avengers stuff there. So before we got the current cinematic universe, uh, pickings for some of these characters were slim. (laughs) So uh, at at the the top, uh, I guess, would be right to us, left to you, is uh, Lou Ferrigno and Eric Allen Kramer as the Incredible Hulk of the Mighty Thor from The Incredible Hulk Returns. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it wasn't that bad. The fur. It had nothing to do with the comic. It just looked different. Viking. Yeah. yeah. The uh, fur, man. It looks like Baron Zemo Thor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next to him is Reb Brown as Captain America from two 1979 uh, Marvel uh, telefilms. Um, it was basically evil, evil Captain America. Mm-hmm. And, and note that this is not the one where they glued his ears onto the outside of the helmet, as <laughs> Joe Crow likes to point out. Uh, his, uh, his, the windshield of the motorcycle, for those that have not seen it, also doubled as his shield. Uh, I will argue about the second one till my dying day, because where else are you going to see a movie where Captain America throws his motorcycle up onto a ledge, rides it off the ledge, <laughs> hits a button, a hang glider pops out, and he hang glides after the bad guy played by Christopher Lee. Oh, wow. Uh, You have the Eric Bana Hulk down there. Uh, In the middle, that may look like comic books. Uh, It kind of is because the Gantre Lawrence 
animated shows from the 60s were basically just lifted right from the comics. Yeah. Uh, and next to that, who remembers Avengers United They Stand? Okay. This was a late 90s Avengers animated show, but they did not have the rights to Thor, Captain America, or Iron Man. <laughs> so it was basically Force Works, the animated series. In all that that implies. So, but in, over the last couple of uh, decade, <laughs> which is a terrible thing to say. It's gotten a little bitter. We've gotten, you know, over bit. 20 Marvel movies. And oh. these... I heard about those. And these... Are they good? <laughs> I gotta see those. I've seen about five of them. So, <laughs> then again, I, I honestly haven't seen Endgame yet, but it's been a weird year. Um, what? Yeah, well, everything, you know, but the thing is, is that it's all spoiled on the internet like a week after it comes out anyways, so it really doesn't matter. But the thing is, is that unlike the examples in the previous slide, these movies pulled extensively, not only from the current comics of the time, but also of the comics of the past, and... The first, it's really weird because everyone points to New Avengers and Ultimates. Uh, has, is everybody familiar with what New Avengers and the Ultimates are? Okay, so for those of you that are not, uh, in the early 2000s, Marvel launched a line of comics called the Ultimate Line, which was basically taking their characters and redoing them in a contemporary setting. They had Ultimate Spider-Man, Ultimate X-Men, and the Avengers group, uh, which can actually kind of be called, what if the Avengers were just a bunch of jerks, uh, was, yes. was called the Ultimates. Even Captain America was a jerk. Basically, Captain America was Clint Eastwood from Gran Torino as Captain America. <laughs> I'm not kidding. True. But elements of... And, and yeah, and yeah, Hank... Tony... <laughs> Hank Pym hit his wife with bug spray. Yes. I mean, it was, it's, so, and the Hulk ate people. I mean, yeah, it's just like yeah. one of those things where, uh, and the new Avengers, which every time I say it, Van cringes a little, uh, was a revamp of the Avengers that no one really asked for, but it happened anyways. And, and I'm not saying that because I actually like those comics um, because I didn't have an extensive history with the Avengers before reading them. So... But a lot of what was developed during the New Avengers era, not only in the New Avengers comic, but in the comics that came out around it, eventually started, le or what formed the basis of these movies. But some of it actually happened before all of those. I'm going to go back to Heroes Reborn. Oh, jeez, Lord of the Mighty. Oh, you just, you just brought me here to hurt me no, tonight. No, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not here to argue that they're good comics. What I'm here to argue is that the Avengers and Heroes Reborn were part of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. For the first time. Yes. And who was Falcon? Yeah. He was an Air Force pilot yeah. that eventually becomes a superhero. So it's kind of weird that even back in the 90s, some of these ideas were kind of leaking in. Well, both of them have something in common. Well, all three... Well, Heroes Reborn, Avengers Disassembled slash New Avengers, and Ultimates all have one thing in common in the macro sense, which is that they were Marvel saying what we just normally do with the Avengers 
at this moment in time isn't working to our satisfaction. And so we want to take it and change it drastically. And those of you who have been with them for years, thanks, but we're looking for other people now. And they didn't care what I thought about it. And I understand that they're in the business to make money to a certain degree. Although I did once tell Tom Brevoort, if all you want to do is make money, sell porn. You, you do have some responsibility to the characters and the readers that have been with you for years, I know. So there's, you know, there's a, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but there's, we need to make a profit. I understand that, your business. But there's also your custodians of an intellectual property and a tradition. And you kind of got to balance those two things, right? So that gets us back to the, the three yeah, well, travesties. Yeah, the three heroes reborn was the failure. That's why they had to, it was basically letting Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld just do what they wanted reintroduce the whole Marvel universe from scratch it didn't work they just had to scrap it I think it bears mentioning because uh, this is something that people who have who have gotten into Marvel through these movies or in the last like 15 years might not believe but there was a point where Iron Man Captain America and the Avengers were the bottom of the barrel for Marvel sales yes they were characters that were just for whatever reason, were dying on the vine. Uh, even the Mark Gruenwald had written Captain America from 1983 to 1995, uh, and his run didn't end on the best note. Uh, Mark Wade took over shortly thereafter and produced some good comics, but they didn't sell well. Iron Man was turned into a villain that was a sleeper agent for Kang that went crazy so they brought teenage Tony Stark from the past into the present and you can read all about it in the crossing omnibus thanks for that walk down memory lane and Thor Thor's always had problems, I believe. No, no, not not like the character himself. Financial. Like he's just got like yeah. you know like 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 he's taxes are due or something. But <laughs> just getting getting I people, say the nay. <laughs> but getting people excited about Thor has always been a kind of a difficult proposition. You need to have somebody very strong, like a Walt Simonson or a Tom DeFalco or a J. Michael Straczynski, to come yeah. in and kind of get people excited. So when they did Heroes Reborn in the mid '90s. It was bringing back Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, who had left Marvel for Image a couple years before, and saying, well, these guys are going to save these characters. And it turned into a huge political fiasco for Marvel, because all the editors and creators at Marvel were like, wait a second, we've been toiling here, and you're giving these guys who left you... The king of the the keys to the kingdom. It's basically like if your significant other leaves you and you start dating somebody else, but then you start re-hooking up with your previous significant other, your current one's going to get mad. Unless it's all socially acceptable within what you're doing. Which, which it wasn't when we were talking about the Avengers. Well, and not but but the funny thing is, is that when they, did, when they did the Ultimates, it was during a period of time where Marvel Comics was literally throwing everything at the wall and seeing what stuck. Yeah. They were coming out of Well, they were, yeah, it was their financial. Yeah, they were really seriously in trouble. Uh, and you had two people in charge, a guy named Bill Yemis and another guy named Joe Quesada, who were basically trying to do the loudmouth Stan Lee thing, but the obnoxious internet troll version of that. Well, you had Ultimate Spider-Man by Brian Bendis, which was uh, doing gangbusters and incredibly popular. Just let Brian Bendis re- reimagine Spider-Man for the modern audience, so they let Mark Miller do the same thing with Ultimate's 
didn't know if anybody was going to uh, like it or follow with it or not, and it turned off and became really popular. You know, I need to point out too, though, that you're talking about they were kind of the bottom of the barrel at that point. That's actually ultimately a, no pun intended, a good thing because there's a reason Marvel couldn't use Spider-Man in the MCU originally or the X-Men or the Fantastic Four, but they had the Avengers available because they sold the ones that were big, the X-Men, Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. Nobody wanted, nobody wanted Iron Man or Thor or Captain America, and so when they decided to make their own movies in 2008, there was Iron Man just sitting there. Nobody wanted him. And, and C-list at best. And I've, I've, I've since found out that Avi Arad, who produced mm-hmm. a lot of the Marvel films of the early 2000s, would not split up Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor. So it really it got to a point out. where Marvel decided, we're just going <laughs> to... Fine, I'll make my own movies with Blackjack and hookers. Oh. <laughs> there you go. Got some... Uh, <laughs> got some Bender fans in the audience. But... I think what what ultimately this panel is about is kind of showing how the Ultimates and that new Avengers era kind of influenced uh, the different characters. So we start with Captain America, who, yeah. if you look at those costumes from the Ultimates, that's really what they did in the first film. Uh, thankfully, he did not have that Captain America's personality. Yeah. Uh, because... Seriously, he was he was a crotchety old like World War II vet that wasn't old. It was really strange. The the, the way the Ultimates crafted Captain America, whereas Bendis, for good or ill, you know, you can have problems with it at all. I think Captain America was one of the characters that benefited the most from that era because that's when Ed Brubaker took over. Oh gosh, yes, Brubaker turned it into a cool like Tom Clancy spy thriller type James Bond thing. It was great. Absolutely, yeah. One of the best friends of Cap ever, yeah. Yeah, but but the ultimate Captain America, wasn't there a bit in one of the ultimate books where, like, when the Hulk stopped rampaging and turned back into Banner and he's lying on the ground asking Cap for help and Cap comes up and kicks him in the face? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's Cap right there, sure. Yeah, and there's also the very famous uh, page from the final issue of the first of all Ultimates volume where he, it's a full page splash of him pointing at the A on his forehead and he yells out do you think this A stands for France? <laughs> That's actually a pretty good line, I gotta admit. Do you know Brubaker actually did a, a, a diss take on that in his run? No. He had Captain America tell somebody I knew French resistance fighters wow. that were worth five of you. That's good. Because Strong. while the government of France did surrender, mm. the people of France no, of did not. not. Yeah. So and then apparently Brian Hitch, who was the artist, had to do a uh, convention in France by himself shortly after that issue came out. <laughs> but I, I would say that the Captain America we ultimately got in all of the films was very much of that Brubaker, a uh, little bit of Gruenwald, but more Brubaker uh, cap than anything else. Mm. Kind of no nonsense, mm-hmm. kind of doing what he needs to do because it's what he needs to do. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, I think... And he had to always do the right thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, of all the Avengers in the cinematic universe, you know you can trust Captain. Yeah, absolutely. Then you have Iron Man. Um, Straight off the paintings from... Uh, Eddie Granoff? Yeah. Eddie Granoff, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, which is... Yeah, I mean, Gran- well, I was like, Granoff went to them, right? They were, mm-hmm. they were putting the movies together and didn't really have a design for the armor. 
And Grouse like, dude, I've got photorealistic art of Iron Man's armor. And when I saw the designs for the movie, I immediately said, oh, they were smart. They went to Adi Granoff. No, he went to them. And thank goodness he did because that it's beautiful. And a lot of what they did in the first Iron Man film was based heavily on the reworked origin that Warren Ellis did during mm-hmm. the extremist storyline. Kind of making, taking it from Tony Stark being the cool exec with a heart of steel and weapons manufacturer to the guy that suddenly realizes what his weapons are actually doing. Which, if you read the books from the 70s and 80s and 90s, uh, which are good, I'm not saying anything bad about them, but he, but he was a little more hawkish. <laughs> In, well, he still had a he friends. still had a military relationship with Nick Fury and Shield. I mean, they were still working together all the way into the eighties for sure. Yeah, but yeah, the uh, the three point superhero landing, yeah, <laughs> which Deadpool did such a great uh, if job. If I remember correctly, wasn't the Iron Man movie? Didn't they bring in Mark Miller, who wrote Ultimates, to help? Uh, I feel like that was true. The, there was an entire Marvel brain trust. Uh, yeah. We keep mentioning Brian Michael Bendis. He actually wrote the tag scene uh, of Nick Fury coming and recruiting Tony Stark at the end. Uh, because I read out all of this. Yeah, and I got a I got a slide. It's coming. Um, <laughs> the thing is, is that. Because these films were produced by Marvel for the first time really ever, instead of just going to these guys for like advice or whatever, they actually had like a brain trust of Marvel writers Mm -hmm. that would talk to Kevin Feige and the group. And while some people would say, well, that's writing by committee, I think ultimately... However they did it, they did it right. It's the right committee, and they're listening to them. Yeah. Whereas before, these companies, they thought, we know the way to do it. We don't care how you've always done it. We're going to change everything, and you'll just take it. And, I mean, that's one of the things, Michael, that's, that's struck me about all the Marvel movies so far, all the MCU movies. They've not just gotten the big things right, and by right I mean, you know, not only done well, but similar to the comics history, They've gotten dumb little random stuff that didn't have to be done right, right. And I've just been like, holy crap, they even did that. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the Marvel Universe that's just kind of odd and weird. And it's just little details that some writer dropped in in 1973 or something. And they'll include that in the movies. And I'm going, these guys get it, right? I mean, you know, in, in, in the Captain America TV thing, the shield was transparent, Whereas in Guardians of the Galaxy, Ronan's blue and has got the hammer thing. And I'm like, you didn't have to have, you could have had, you know, Joe, Joe, Joe Blow as the villain in this. You got Ronan with the hammer. I mean, they just get every little tiny detail right. They don't even have to. And that, that impresses, you know, the folks in the know. And I mean, they, they could have really gone with the Ultimates version of the World War II outfit and, and, and with the mask underneath the helmet and all that. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. They made it look, it was military, it was tactical but it was still really close to the comic book version. In fact, I think the only Captain America costume I disliked was the one from the first Avengers. Yes. Movie, which just, it was off. I can't really put my finger on what was wrong with it. It was too big. <laughs> That's fair. The, well, they went from kind of gritty realism with the American flag motif to just flat out plastic red, white, and blue. Yeah. That's what I felt was wrong with it. But they also... They figured it out, though, by Winter Soldier. 
ultimately, though, I think through all of these films, what they've done right, and it's uh, it's something that I kind of believe in. You can you can go off script, uh, so to speak, with a comic book film adaptation, but as long as you get the heart of the character, it 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 will work, yeah. and that's why Iron Man went from being. I don't want to say he's a C-list hero because he's an A-list Marvel hero, but he was, wasn't a household name. I mean, people were like, oh, yeah, there was that cartoon in the 60s, and there was that cartoon in the 90s where he had a mullet, and he was played by Ted Stryker from the Airplane movies um, and, and, and all that. But then suddenly, like, what are we going to do without Iron Man? I mean, it's just like this is the position we're in now. I... Like, like, like I, I just was completely blown away by the fact that even... The bad Iron Man film, Iron Man 2, and I put bad in quotes, is still an enjoyable movie to watch. There's a lot of, like, there, it's, collectively it's not that good, and I got sick of hearing about that guy's bird. Yeah, which, that, well, you know, it's funny, yeah, Iron Man 2, and to some degree Thor 2, and even Avengers Age of Ultron, you can tell those are all movies where they're still figure, feeling their way, right? Mm-hmm. They're not quite as polished as they were going to be. But they're still, I mean, it's all relative. I mean, compare them to anything from before 2008, right? Yeah. I mean, so. <laughs> the but, Dolph Lundgren Punisher where it has this symbol of a knife hitting where on his chest. Right, yeah. I because mean, the producer said it doesn't make any sense that he would wear a skull on his chest, <laughs> but it makes a lot of sense that he would do some whittling in the sewers. <laughs> Thank you, I'm here all weekend. Um, <laughs> Thor was straight out of the JMS run, the design for this character. Yeah, this was not Ultimate Thor, because Ultimate Thor was just weird, and I don't even know. So, so basically, Ultimate Thor was... The what? JMS wrote that movie, too. He was part of part it, of yeah. It, yeah. And, and in it. Yeah, he's uh, he's driving the... Uh, the pickup truck. He's the guy that discovers the hammer. Oh, yeah. yeah. Stan Lee's the one driving the truck. Oh, that's right. Yeah, truck. he's... Yeah. Uh, and, and here's something, is that you, you take, you take like, the best of the Walt Simonson Thor era, and you take the JMS era, and then you give that to a Shakespearean director yeah. in the form of Kenneth Branagh. And this is why, as much as people love Thor Ragnarok, and I recognize that it's a fun movie, I'm still going to die on the hill that the best Thor film was the first one. Just because in that film, there is a scene where I felt five years old again. <laughs> like when I was a little kid and I saw Superman catch Lois and the helicopter and the music swells, oh, yeah. Yeah. the hair stand. When he gets the hammer back in that first film, mm-hmm. um, and the music just came up just right, and it was like I was like, "Wow, they're doing a superhero movie. They're not embarrassed by it." Well, you know what I felt, yeah, what I felt about the three Thor movies is that the first two were trying to make that standard good Thor formula work, and I got the sense that both. Fagy and the other producers and all, and um, what's his name, the actor? Hemsworth. Hemsworth. I feel like all of them basically said, we've done everything we can do with that formula in these two movies. And they also felt like the second one was kind of a, a drop. I love the second one, but they felt like the second one was kind of a drop-off. And I don't think they wanted to do another one in that vein. And so they, by bringing in a new director, a totally different direction for the whole story they got everybody excited again. So I will totally agree that the third one, is it's totally different from the first two. It's not really anything Thor that we recognize. It's honestly like Guardians of the Galaxy 
1.5 or something yeah. in a way. And that's nothing wrong with that. But if you're going for a Thor movie, you don't want Guardians of the Galaxy 1.5. So I have very mixed feelings about it because I'm glad they did it because I'm glad we got a third Thor movie. And it's a very, very fun, enjoyable movie. But yeah, it's nothing like the Thor we would expect from the first two. So it's, you know, do with it what you will, I guess. I will say about the second one, there is a scene in that that made me feel like I was reading a Marvel comic. And it's when Loki is talking to Thor and he assumes uh, Chris Evans' form as Captain America. And it was actually Chris Evans in the Captain America outfit. Yeah. And I'm like, that's a two, That's like a day of filming, basically. <laughs> they may have done it like during the Avengers shoot or whatever. But it was, it was just like, it suddenly made me feel like I was seeing a comic book on screen. And it's the, like you were talking about the little details. Mm -hmm. That's something you would see in a comic like all the time. Like, because you you don't have to worry about actors in in a comic. Just throw it in, sure. And that's the the cool key is seeing a comic on the screen because for the first time now with the Marvel movies, producers were letting comics be shown on the screen, whereas in in the era we came up with before, they were embarrassed by comics, but now they're not. Also, if you if you watch the first Thor film and the scene where he does get his powers back, you can play the theme song to He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, and it works pretty much just as well. Uh, I'm not even kidding. I tried it one night. It was amazing. So You never doubted, right, that he did that. My favorite Marvel character of all time, the Incredible Hulk. This is The fact that they did Professor Hulk... Makes me so happy that I can't even describe it. And you haven't even seen it. And I haven't even... No, but, he, but here's the thing. The Incredible Hulk, the first Incredible Hulk film, which is like the hidden Marvel film, the <laughs> hidden MCU film. Yeah. Like, if, if, if Tony Stark wasn't Ang- at the... Ang- what? Ang- Ang- no, 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 the, the, the Leterrier movie. If they didn't bring back uh, William Hurt as... Um, Ross. Thunderbolt Ross and Tony Stark didn't appear at the end of that film, it doesn't have to be part of the, yeah. the, the universe. Absolutely. And because Universal Pictures owns the film rights to the Hulk and won't give them up, and I guess Disney hasn't backed up the money truck to a property they probably don't see as being as profitable as, as others. As Spider-Man, yeah. Um, well. We've only gotten Hulk in... The, in other people's films, basically. Has anybody noticed that in the actual MCU, the Hulk has no origin? And I think Spider-Man doesn't either, does he? We just kind of know that they're both Hulk well, and Spider-Man. Well, they did the, the, the credit sequence of the Incredible Hulk film where they showed him getting irradiated yeah, Bill Bixby style. Yeah. But they don't talk about it because... Yeah, Louis Lati- okay, so the Ang Lee Hulk film, who's seen it? Okay, who liked it? Okay. Yes, Andy, I see your hand. <laughs> um, Ang Lee tried to make an art house film of a comic book story, which is a noble failure, in my opinion. It's, it's, it's interesting to watch, but when you... Comic books are a medium, film is a medium. Comic book panels do not work on film. In, as transition tools. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is, is that people didn't want to see the Hulk fight a cloud at the end of the film. <laughs> <laughs> 
And what Louis Leterrier did, it was similar to Superman Returns to Man of Steel, is that he steered in the complete other direction. No, we're just going to show the Hulk tearing stuff up all over the place. Yeah. And we're going to make a comic book television hybrid that actually makes for a fun movie. And a lot of the emotional parts of it were cut out. Because there were like scenes of, of him talking to Betty's boyfriend, who was Leonard Sampson, who went on to be in Modern Family, and it's really weird to watch. <laughs> <laughs> is, is the Ang Lee movie I mean is it considered MCU canon I mean I know it's I mean let me let me put it this way I know that the movie itself is not of course but is the origin we see in it considered to be that Hulk's origin or because Incredible Hulk he just is already the Hulk but during the pre-credit during the credit sequence you saw the and there was a flashback of him and they should I remember when the film was in production, they showed this image of Edward Norton sitting in a machine similar to what Bill Bixby did. Oh, okay, yeah. And if you and there, it shows the green going across him, and then everything goes pear shaped. Yeah. So he was a military experiment. It was very much like the television series, but again, they just got to Bruce Banner on the run, turning into the Hulk and fighting the military. Yeah. I think and, at some point too. We've seen origins from other movies of Hulk. We've seen origins from Spider-Man in other movies. I think probably producers thought maybe we were getting uh, tired of seeing the origins so many. Oh, amen. I will absolutely agree that we didn't need another and another. I mean, I thought one of the best things that Marvel did when they got a hold of Spider-Man this time was not do the origin. Because we don't, we just had twice. You know, you don't need a third one. We get it. We know. There's no, my daughter's 11 and she knows his origin. She doesn't need another movie to explain that. That was great. But see, the problem there, though, is that when, uh, when it's not Marvel making them, Hollywood... I've always felt like Hollywood understands the origin story because that's a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. You start out, you're not a superhero. You are beset with troubles. Something happens that transforms you both physically and as a character. You overcome it by the end, and you're the hero, and you win. Hollywood gets that story, so they just want to keep redoing the origin stories over and over and over. But see, comic books are all about issue number two. Issue number three, what happens next? What happens next? And usually what happens next is, and then I fight this guy, and then I fight this guy, and then I fight this guy. And it's harder to make a big Hollywood movie out of, and then I fight this guy. I mean, the closest you probably get to that back in the day was Superman 2, right? Mm-hmm. Because they found a way to package, the, and, then he, and then he fight those three guys. You have to put all the Lois Lane stuff, and you have to find a way to package it as a story, but that's harder. Why not just remake the origin again? Which is ultimately, again, we keep saying that, and it's kind of a bad pun to say, but which, which is ultimately why what they did with the Hulk and what they did with Captain America, uh, both in Endgame, uh, because I, I cannot tell you the sheer joy I felt sitting in the movie theater watching the first Avengers film, and <clears throat> Mark Ruffalo goes, that's my secret cap, I'm always angry, turns into the Hulk, punches that thing into the in the face basically and brings it down and I'm like oh they get it <laughs> because Joss Whedon love or hate things that he did in these films decided that why are we trying to run away from the thing the audience wants to see 
And what the audience wants to see, I'm sorry, when you go to a Hulk movie, you want to see the Hulk tear stuff up. Could the, could the Godzilla producers take that yeah. note, by the way? <laughs> I mean, seriously, I've been, I've been re-watching just for my own personal uh, amusement the, the, the Bill Bixby series. And really, you didn't need the Hulk in any of those episodes. You could have resolved it another way. It was just an excuse to tear stuff up. Oh, yeah. And, but what they did was they made Banner a psychologically compelling character, much like what some of the better Hulk writers, including Peter David, did. And at one point during Peter David's run, he merged all of the various iterations of the Hulk into one character, uh, who Paul Jenkins later referred to as a separate personality. But when it was going on, it was like, this is Bruce Banner's new paradigm. And he was the Professor Hulk. He wore glasses and bunny slippers into battle. (laughs) And the fact that they eventually got there in the films I'm happy with right but the problem is is now I'm not going to get a Planet Hulk movie because we've already done the best parts of that in Thor now I'm not going to get Smart Hulk because his arms all messed up it's the same with Cap Mm -hmm. the Cap films are my favorite among my favorites of the MCU films but we saw him get created then we saw him destroy S.H.I.E.L.D. and then we saw him basically stopped being Captain America because of Civil War. We never got the, you know, Captain America versus, uh, well, we did get Batrock, surprisingly, shockingly. It was a little, but we never got the Captain America adventure movie. Right. It was always some world-changing event within the cinematic universe. Like the first 10 minutes of Age of Ultron tried to be that for everybody. Yeah. And yeah, where it was just them fighting, fighting the bad Hydra guys. or whatever, yeah. That was it. Yep. Oh, skipped one. Nick Fury was straight out of the Ultimate Comics. (laughs) There is an issue of Ultimates where they're all talking about who would play them in movies. It's amazing that they found an actor that looked that much like the character. (laughs) Wow. But there's an issue of Ultimates where they're all talking about who would play them in a movie, and Nick Fury says, well, obviously it would be Samuel L. Jackson. So we all thought this, and then it happened. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm watching the end of Iron Man, and he walks out with that eye patch, and I'm just like, okay, I, you know. But I will say this. The thing that I miss is, you know how they do those, they used to do those little mini movies and put them on the Blu-rays? Yeah. Like, they had, like, the, the Mandarin, Mandarin in jail and all that. What I want is one directed by Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> where Nick Fury is hitchhiking and he's picked up by Jules from Pulp Fiction. Oh, wow. And the entire sequence is them driving along, and Jules goes, You know what they call a quarter pounder with cheese in Europe? I guess it would be a, something, they don't have the metric system. Yeah, I heard that too. And then they just keep driving. <laughs> Oh my gosh, now I want to see that. <laughs> see? It's like one of those things that now I can't, like, like mm. and, and, and I'm not, I'm sure Samuel L. Jackson would probably love to do it. It'd probably oh, be a pain in the ass to film. But, yeah. But no, Nick Fury in the movies has been glorious. That, I, that was one of the best parts of Ultimates was, you know, Mark Miller and Brian Hitch decided to turn Samuel L. Jackson into Nick Fury. Yeah. And it totally worked. 
And he was always the guy in the movies that was telling everyone in charge that they were stupid. <laughs> like, he's trying to wrangle Tony Stark at first in yeah. Iron Man 2. That's yeah. his basic function. But he's the guy running interference for the superheroes in the first Avengers movie. Mm-hmm. And then he's the guy helping to bring down his own organization in, mm-hmm. in Winter Soldier. Oh, so good. And, yeah, the, the, the 70s spy thriller done as a superhero film, which I think is another key Honestly. to the MCU films, is that while they're superhero films, they're also other types of films. Michael, I think that others have been more spectacular, vastly more spectacular. But when we look back in a couple of years, if not right now, The Winter Soldier, that is just the... You think pound for... Pound, pound for pound, pound yeah. is a movie. Yes, it is the exactly. it is the best. It's As the tightest structurally. Yes, absolutely. And it's the Russos, and that's where we figured out that they are the ones that give the keys to everything <laughs> to them, because clearly they know what they're doing. And and Joss had kind of gone with the Ultron. Well. See, I like Age of Ultron. I like it, too. It's just that it's not nearly as streamlined and smooth. It's just got so many bumpy things going on on it. That I, it I liked Ultron, but I don't think if you let Whedon run Avengers, we would have ended up with... Uh, no. We wouldn't have ended up with Thanos. No. No, we, well, it was his idea that Thanos was right. the villain, but it wouldn't have ended the way it... No. I think we needed Whedon to start it. I yes. think he, he brought yes. the... F- like. Absolutely. Sorry, 2012, that first Avengers film, yes. was some of the most fun I have ever had in a theater as an adult. Absolutely. Like, when when the Hulk started beating Loki and, and <laughs> it took it took the second viewing for me to realize that he had a line in that because the audience and this was the great thing about seeing it opening weekend that movie the audience was it was one of the best audiences I've right. ever been in a theater because everybody reacted at the exact same time in the exact same way but everyone laughed so hard during the puny god scene that I didn't hear him say puny god until the second time the only other time I've been in a theater and the audience has exploded that much over a, something that's not a comedy movie was when Indiana Jones shot the swordsman in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. It's the only other thing. And it's because Whedon was a comics fan. Yeah. And Feige was a comics fan. And, you know, he, and Whedon's a writer, I mean, you know, as well as a director. He got it. And for having the keys to the, to the Marvel movie kingdom, Kevin Feige, it's like, really look at like the behind the scenes stuff of early 2000s Marvel films. He's just like there in the background. Like, you know, Brian Singer directed the first X-Men film, and he was just one of the producer, one of the 15 producers they had on that film. And they kicked Avi Arad to the side uh, for the main Marvel films and stuck with him. And I think I'm not going to get into a giant DC versus Marvel film thing because, one, a member of the audience will come up here and punch me in the face. <laughs> and so that's all you get up. But, two, I, I do want to make the point that there is something to be said of having one central controlling figure mm. that keeps things running on time. Now, there is something also to be said about making a film of a superhero universe where all the films are different and you have a yeah. different tone and you can, you can argue the merits of that. But I think the key to the MCU being as good as it is is that you've got this small group of people making the decisions, which is... Which is sometimes cost you a director. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, what's his name? John Favreau didn't direct Iron Man three and Ant Man and Ant Man and uh, Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright, yeah. Or Ant Man because creatively they the production side was like you can't do that. Now to be fair, Favreau stuck around as Happy Hogan. Yeah. 
and he's still yeah, a producer. Uh, so he didn't completely walk away. And he's still in the Spider-Man. He's so good. In Spider-Man. <laughs> he's so good. I never would have seen Happy Hogan becoming such a huge integral character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe compared to the comics where he pretty much disappeared about 1978. Yeah, and I, think, then I think it never came back, I don't and, think. And then you tell people who are newer to the franchise, it's like, you know, at one point in the comics, he and Pepper Potts were married. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Which blows people's minds, and well, it's one of the It was that whole soap see. opera thing from the 60s and 70s where... Where, where Pepper's pining for Tony and Tony, oh, I can't be with you because I'm my heart and I must be a superhero and everything. And finally she married well, Happy. Did, didn't Happy show up, uh, the, their relationship show up in Mike Grell's uh, Iron Man? The one right after Kurt Brusiak's run? Yeah. I may have been out by then. Okay. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's the thing about that's a. I thing. can't remember. It's all very fuzzy from that era. That's something Iron Man I think has in common with Thor in the comics is it's if you like try to read the entire history of the character going from Tales of Suspense thirty nine. Yeah. Yes. And thank you. Uh, on it's kind of a really bumpy road, yeah. but like you can hand people certain runs like the Michelini. Uh, late run one and two uh, one and two you can hand them the first issues of Kurt Busiek's run oh yeah you can I, you know it's, it's, it's a boring story to me but some people love extremists with Warren Ellis well the, I mean, the Bill Mantlow run right before the first Michelini to me is great but nobody ever mentions it because right as it ran right into Michelini and Layton and mm-hmm. J.R. Jr. and people just kind of jumped on that and forgot but the but the, the, the Mantlo run right before it is where you get Midas and you get a lot of the stuff that where Tony loses control of Stark International for the first time, which is done over again with Stain, which is what they did in the movie. Mm-hmm. So, it, he, you know, the Mantlo stuff kind of lays the foundations for things that we would see later in the comics and the movies. Oh, uh, some, uh, since I love this trivia, uh, who here has seen the movie A Christmas Story? <laughs> now, who here was aware that uh, the kid from A Christmas Story was one of the producers of Iron Man. <laughs> He's in the film. Really? He's the lab tech that oh, wow. Obadiah Stane yells at. The balding guy? Yeah, that's Peter Billingsley. Wow. He's in Spider-Man. He's in Spider-Man. He, he is? Yeah, far from home. Really? That character. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Deep cut. That is. <laughs> that, <laughs> I didn't even realize that, yeah. But, um... But yeah, I I think. Uh, and again, that's where they got it right. That they they use they let the comics tell the story. They they use the Iron Man stories of the comics for the movies. They used they borrowed them right out of it. They weren't afraid to make Tony Stark an alcoholic. They went ahead and did that. They touched on Demon in a Bottle and two, yeah, yeah, just a, a little, little bit, bit, but they didn't go all the way. And then they didn't do what Denny O'Neill did, which was have him be like a vagrant for ten issues. Right. Uh, Winter Soldier, I think, is the the one thing that came out of that New Avengers era that has had the biggest effect on not only the Captain America films, but now he's such he's getting his own television series. Yeah, because it uh, wasn't Bendis; it was Brubaker. Yeah, and I I disagreed with some of the things Brubaker did. I didn't like him making Nomad crazy. No. Uh, there was an issue where he, yeah, Nomad was a character from the '70s uh, that was a partner to Captain America. So in the '50s, there was this really short run of Captain America comics where he fought the commies because it was the '50s, and that's what you did in the '50s. 
And so because Marvel writers of the 70s love to tie every single thing together, I lovingly call this the Roy Thomas effect. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, they decided that there was a Captain America and Bucky in the 50s, but it wasn't Steve Rogers yeah. and, and James Buchanan. And then they like Barnes. shoot people and stuff. Yeah. yeah so. And eventually they brought uh, Steve Englehart, a writer named Steve Englehart, brought that Captain America back and he was crazy. And the guy, the kid that was his Bucky comes back and he kind of tries to make a life for himself. Um, so he took the name Nomad. Uh, your homework for tonight is to Google on your phone or whatever, 90s Marvel Nomad, uh, where you can see what it would look like if uh, the dude from Renegade uh, played, played Bucky in a, in a TV show. Uh, he had a, it was a serious mullet. But no, I think this was one of the things, I think the reason why Winter Soldier was so good is that at the heart of it, it wasn't about the end of S.H.I.E.L.D. It wasn't about a, the Hydra conspiracy. It was about the fact that Steve wasn't gonna go, like turn his back on his friend. Yeah. Like he went through everything and took a broken arm and everything to basically save this guy. And finally, thanks to the help of Wakanda, you know, he was all whole, and then he turned into a pile of ash. But it was... <laughs> but he's back. But, no, this was one of those things. I totally recommend the Winter Soldier storyline if you haven't read it. And to Brubaker's credit, I mean, as a comic fan, you always knew Bucky had always been dead. Who would have thought you could bring back Bucky and it would be good? I mean, yes. who thought that would be possible? Right. Yeah, this was a weird era because right around the time Bucky came back, they also brought Jason Todd back over at, yeah. at DC. Yeah. And they it was, was they also killed Captain America the same time they killed off Batman. They did. Yeah. And they both came back in the exact same way too. They it was a better. time travel thing. Yeah, that's right. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it hurts. <laughs> yeah, the Winter Soldier. I mean, but again, it just shows Brubaker writes cinematically. Mm-hmm. And so he his stuff seemed easier to translate into movies than a lot of it. Like just one for one almost. I mean, there are just a few slight differences, mostly involving the Red Skull, because they'd already burned that bridge, so they couldn't really have the Red Skull be as involved in the story as he was in the comics. But it just, yeah, it, 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 it twitched over. And interesting, too, that you knew that you could see that they were planning on doing it from the beginning because they had Bucky like fall off the train as mm-hmm. opposed to get blown into pieces right there on camera, you know. So they were setting up that he was going to come well, back yeah, from and, the beginning. And even the fact that uh, Zemo, not Zemo, um, why can't I remember his name? Zola, thank you. Uh, Zola, oh, was, Zola. Uh, or was already experimenting on him. Yeah. So it was like, it's this one thing where sometimes you think they're doing this by the seat of their pants, but it's like, no, they've got this in their hip pocket the entire way. Yeah. Um, I've got a couple uh, slides here just to show like how comic book influences did creep into the films. This next one is for Van. <laughs> there was a famous Avengers cover of Hawkeye with Ant-Man on the arrow, and they did it in Civil War. <laughs> Probably one of the best parts. Yeah. That's a classic. <laughs> there, so I've known Van for a very long time, and there are times where I was watching the various MCU films, and I knew exactly where he was squeeing with delight. <laughs> Actually, I'm just sitting there going, holy crap, they did that. I also apologize. Apparently, uh, the fonts that I used in my PowerPoint presentation don't translate to this laptop. <laughs> but, you know, when you look at the, the, the evolution of the comics to the films... While there's a lot of differences, you know, especially between like the original Avengers and the Ultimates, 
I mean, the original Avengers was basically Loki messing with them. It wasn't a world, you know, it's like they always had that thing, you know, there came a day, a day unlike any other, where a threat was uh, there that, that more than one hero could, couldn't handle. I'm like, it was Loki messing with them. It's not like Loki <laughs> brought an alien invasion down on it. It was just like, let's make everyone think that the Hulk's a bad guy, so you're all going to fight the Hulk, so eventually you'll kill Thor. Good plan, Loki. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that this turned into a thing is actually kind of a minor miracle. Yeah. When well, you, I, uh, yeah, having, having Loki is about the only thing they, <laughs> that they really preserved. And they didn't fight the rock men from Saturn or whatever the next, in the next yeah. movie. So that was, I think, a step forward, too. Ultron, yeah. So the stone men of Saturn, no. Wasn't the villain in Avengers the same as the villain in Ultimates, the... The Chitari, yeah. yeah. That was another thing. The, the, that's something they pulled. Uh, in the Ultimates, there was like the shape-changing alien race. Yeah. Uh, that was more done. Who here has seen the Ultimate Avengers animated film? Yeah. If you haven't, track it down. It's basically, when it, it came out like 2005, mm. and it really served as kind of the template of what they would eventually do with the Marvel live-action films. It's, it's kind of halfway between the way you expect the characters to be and the way they are in Ultimates. Yeah. It, it doesn't go full Ultimates, but it, gets, it, it edges up pretty close to it. Yeah, yeah. They, they edge closer with the Hulk and... I will never forgive Mark Miller for what he did to the Hulk in, in the Ultimates. I mean, okay, so I, I've come recently come to the conclusion that comics are a giant Rorschach test for people in terms of what they're willing to buy. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a different stopping point. Like, Superman had a mermaid ex-girlfriend. For some people, that is an absolute no. <laughs> but for me, it's like Tuesday. It's like, of course. <laughs> he had a mermaid ex-girlfriend. Everybody did weird stuff in college. It's just how it works. <laughs> and I think the Hulk is one of those characters... Wouldn't that be Friday? Okay, <laughs> this... Sorry. I was about to make an Arthur Treacher's joke, but it's yeah, it against it. Uh, but I think the Hulk is one of those Rorschach tests because... If you had a raging, destructive creature, it is almost laughable to think that his rampages did not result in somebody's death, right? Oh, sure. And uh, Greg Pak, who wrote The Hulk for a couple years, actually had in his comics that even though The Hulk was doing his thing, Bruce Banner was always in the background running the numbers, essentially. So anything The Hulk did, it was based on his subconscious calculations of how to do this without hurting anybody. But for for people like Bendis and Mark Miller, The Hulk had to be a 9-11 event. And it's it's not for nothing that the Ultimates came out in like 2003. Yeah. We're still two years out here in the States from 9-11. So they had the Hulk go on a rampage because Freddie Prinze Jr. was going out with Betty Banner. And boy, does that scene age well. Yeah. Yeah, really. And oh, that he, was horrible. Uh, Hulk smash Freddie Prinze yeah, Jr. Hulk smash Freddie Prinze Jr. And he destroys most of Manhattan. Over that. Yeah. And... The next issue has this, like, all these people with, like, memorials, and it's really treated like the aftermath of 9-11. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I get it, but for me as a Hulk fan, the moment you put the Hulk in that position, 
you can never make him a hero. Even if he helps save the day at the end, they just turn Bruce Banner into this total pathetic, like, pale imitation of a man. That gets kicked in the face by Captain America. America. And that's where I think the MCU kind of turned it on a dime and said, no, we're actually going to make him a hero. And it was amazing for me as a Hulk fan in the aftermath of the first Avengers film that suddenly the Hulk is on the, in all the merchandising, mm-hmm. like all of the notebooks and the, the, the stickers and the t-shirts and the bath towels. It's like suddenly he's, he's there at the table, which is why I kind of call Avengers, the incredible Hulk two guest starring the Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it, oh yeah, that's a joke, but the, well, right. But I mean, but, but it, it's funny cause it's inverting what I was about to say, which is that, what Marvel, I think, figured out, there's a handful of characters that are great as supporting characters. But as solo characters, particularly in movies, they don't work as well. And I think the Hulk has always been one of those. He's great as somebody that the other characters can react to. But when he's having to carry the whole movie, it's a little thin. Yeah, I, I will agree with that, actually, because if you look at, like, the best runs of the Hulk are the ones where the paradigm of the Hulk, of Bruce Banner being on the run is subverted. Like, Peter David's run, mm-hmm. you know, like, changed every couple of years, and it kept it kind of fresh. Uh, I still argue that I want a Red Hulk film mm-hmm. with William Hurt yeah. as the Red Hulk. Yeah. <laughs> it was actually my, my one problem with Civil War that there's... General Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross sitting there telling everybody what a terrible thing they've done and how destructive they are, and no one stood up and said, yeah, let's talk about Harlem for about five minutes. <laughs> and your little guy with his little tantrum, and you turned the Hulk loose. Oh, but, it, but it's all our fault. Okay. Come on. Would you? Fair. Come on. William yeah. Hurt is the red... You're, you're not going to go with me on this one, are you? No, that sounds okay. good. Okay. <laughs> I just, I mean, you'd need... I just feel like you'd need more characters. But, but if you've got the Red Hulk and the Green Hulk and the two of them in a conflict, then yeah. you've got their half, they're each carrying half of the story, and that's, that's, that's a little better. Especially if you do the plot they eventually did in the comics, which was all of the smart people, all the smart villains of the Marvel Universe mm. getting together and forming a group called the Intelligentsia. <laughs> and basically they're like, we're taking over, and our first move is to remove all the Hulks because they're in our way. Right. Because the Hulk is the only one they couldn't, they couldn't factor in because yeah. he's so unpredictable. Yeah. But talking about um, like the Bendis run and the uh, the Miller run too, I think another thing that Bendis brought to the movies, Maria Hill was totally inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she ended up becoming an important part of the movies, and and also Bendis is the first one who let Wolverine and Spider-Man be, be team members. Until then, it was never you were never allowed to use them in Avengers. Uh, and, I have very mixed feelings about that. I just didn't want them in. <laughs> I didn't want them in my Avengers. I felt like there's the Avengers are the Avengers. They, they're strong enough that they don't need to... Do, it, it just felt like stunt casting. It felt like if you're doing you know, some TV show and you bring in characters from some other TV show to be permanent cast members just because... It's like saying, look how bad our ratings are that we've got to bring these other people in. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I never minded Spider-Man guest starring, but, his, but Spidey's standard response was oh no i don't do the team thing i'll come and help you guys but i'm out of here you know and wolverine is like he's already got a team that he that he disrespects he doesn't need two <laughs> to disrespect you know so 
I just, I just, it just felt icky to me to have to. Ha- it felt like it felt needy somehow, you know. The, the, the MCU now it seems like Spider-Man is now taking over the Iron Man role. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, I, I can't tell you as an, I've been an Iron Man. Iron Man has been my favorite superhero since 1977. Okay, and not only having the Iron Man movie start the whole thing off and having the Avengers be all about Iron Man and all that, Edith. Huh? Huh? When they, I go to see a Spider-Man movie, and in the Spider-Man movie, I'm told, even dead, I'm the hero. And I'm like, this is my world now. <laughs> this is Iron Man's world, even dead. It, it, it's interesting, it's amazing. though, it's because amazing. one of the things about the MCU is what they've proven with Endgame is they're not afraid to shake things up. Yeah. Uh, by taking... Captain America off the table by taking Hulk off the table, pretty much. Yeah. And by taking Iron Man way off the table. I think he's pretty much off the building, yeah. You have basically told the audience now anything is possible. Like, you, you could count on it before that Cap and, and Iron Man, and to a certain extent, the Hulk would be part of it. But now it's not. And I think to a certain extent, that's what Casada and Bendis and Brevoort were doing with New Avengers. Not so much with Ultimates. Ultimates was always its own thing. But with New Avengers, is it, it started a period at Marvel where they decided it was okay to break their toys. So you have Spider-Man and Wolverine on an Avengers And my team. heart, but yeah. yeah. And I get that, but the point is like, okay, and we're going to bring Bucky back. Which we never do. We we would never do. Oh, and by the way, Gwen Stacy had two kids. Oh, jeez. And oh, by the way, Norman Osborn's back, and he's now in charge of what she, what is taken over for Shield. Now you know, I didn't mind Norman becoming the big bad of the Marvel universe for a while. I thought he was not a bad choice because he's like the evil Tony Stark, and that kind of worked for me. And he even had a suit of armor. Yes, he was the so, original Iron Patriot. Iron Patriot. So yeah, I I, I thought that was fine, and honestly. If, if phase five of the MCU is like Norman Osborn versus what's left of Marvel, I'm okay with that. Because it brings Spider-Man, well, if we get him back, right? They will. If it brings Spider-Man more to the forefront, it, you know, it gives, it, it's a, he's a much different big bad than Thanos, completely different, right? More grounded, so you've done the cosmic thing, they can do more. Thing. I think he works really well in that role. On, uh, on the other hand, I suspect it may be Doctor Doom. We'll see. Either one would be fine. They're both good, I think. They're both strong. But to me, I think what the the MCU has done was take the best parts of things that Bendis and Miller did and kind of make it palatable. These these films aren't making a billion dollars because comic book fans are the only ones going to the theater. Absolutely right. My dad, love him as I do, always kind of gave me a side look with my comics. Like, he just never understood the appeal. But we were sitting out having dinner one time, and it was a place where they have TVs on, and the Avengers was on, and it got to the point where the Hulk punches the Chitauri said, wait, wait, watch this. And I watched my dad, who always gave me that look, go, wow, that was really cool. <laughs> and that's where these films went. Is, you know, Infinity War and Endgame, uh, and in rewatching Infinity War, man, that has a Star Wars vibe to it. Mm. Like a serious Star Wars mm. vibe to it. But even though those are... Infi- yeah, and Infinity War is an incredibly depressing film at the end. E- the reason they were able to do that is because they gave you 20-some-odd movies before that where yes. at the end you felt good about yourself. 
So that's why you cared when yes. half the universe died. Yeah, if they were standalone movies, you'd be like, oh, okay. But with all that investment, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a different thing. And, and I think ultimately it, it reminds, it will, you know, it doesn't always bring people to the comics. But I think it makes you more likely to want to read the comics when you hear, oh, that thing I liked in that movie has an origin here. So, I mean, that's why they always roll out the comicsology sales when a new movie is coming out. Yeah. And it used to be, <laughs> back in the old days, <laughs> uh, Barnes & Noble would, like, every time a new comic book film would come out, they would have, like, a little, like, end cap display of that hero with all the trade paperbacks they had in stock. Except, except when the first X-Men movie came out and all the retailers went, all right, so people want to see this awesome core X-Men team. And they went over to the shelves and looked at the X-Men and they went, oh, crap, forget it. <laughs> We've done well, nothing, it, nothing there is remotely like the movie, no. To, to be fair, uh, that was right around the time Casada was taking over as editor-in-chief. And if you read the book... Uh, Bill and Joe's excellent adventure where they go over the first year of them being in charge of Marvel there is a a list of things Casada wanted to do and the first was we need to beef up our trade paperback line Mm -hmm. and that's when you started seeing storylines be six issues because we needed to get a trade paperback out of this but which has its ups and downs yeah I was about to say it's, 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 it's it's not a binary good or bad but at the same time, it gave retailers something to put out when a new comic book film was coming out. That's true. Even though comic book films rarely translate into sales for the comics themselves, which is kind of weird. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I, I do want to point out, too, I think the success of using comics as a background for their movies shows that they're even willing to use the new comics for, for the new movies coming out. We see. Captain Marvel relying on Kelly Sue the comics run. We see the new Captain America Falcon being set up with uh, <coughs> Nick Spencer that was the one to do that. I mean, we see that they're they're looking to comics all the time to influence everything coming out, and that's because of the success they had early on. And with the recent announcement that they're casting, they casted uh, John Walker, U.S. agent, for the yeah for the Winter Soldier. Uh, TV show. Wow, okay. That means they may be doing their version of the Captain storyline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very so, good. But thank you. I want to thank everybody for coming. Yeah, thank you very much. Remember to rate this panel in your app. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment production.